Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Bucket List Gamers podcast, a bit of a milestone for us. I am Jay and as always joined by Eddie. Hello. And today we are talking about two games. We are talking about The Secret of Monkey Island, which is number 19 on the uh, retro games list. And we're talking about Monkey Island 2, LeChuck's Revenge, which is slightly uh, lower down at 35. Still really high up to say it's a sequel. Like all the other ones have had quite a gap between them, the ones we've looked at where there's two in the list. So these two are really close together. I think that probably speaks to the fact that a lot of retro gamer readers are PC gamers rather than console gamers. Yeah, I was going to say, because it's surprising how high up they are, because obviously both Monkey Islands come from a point in time where there was the disparity between video gaming and computer gaming, and Monkey Island very firmly sits in the computer game side of things. So yeah, it is surprising that they're that high up, really, because point-and-click adventures haven't really done much. Since sort of like the peak of Monkey Island, they've sort of become a bit niche as an art form these days. I think they always were, to be fair. I was the only person in my sort of, well, I think there was me and maybe one other in my group of friends that that liked point and click games. But at at one point, maybe 97-ish, point and click games were like my thing. I were obsessed with them. I wouldn't play anything else. And I think it all stems from a game which I'm sure we will talk about that isn't in the list that deserves to be Day of the Tentacle. So I remember being, what what would I have been? So yeah, about 10 in 96. And I went to Meadowall and went into game and they had a full PC set up in the corner, which can you imagine seeing that in a game shop these days? But they had like a full PC set up on a table with a chair and it had um, Day of the Tentacle running on it. And it was a, it was just, it's one of the earlier parts of the game, I think, or actually it might not be, but there's a clown set up and you can go up and punch it and I think you have to burst it and steal something out of it in the end. But it was that scene on this computer and I just sat there clicking the clown and punching it and I thought it was amazing. And the graphics and stuff, I'd not really seen anything like it before coming from a Commodore 64 and even then a Game Gear, you didn't see that almost hand-drawn style where it's a a hand-drawn character on a a hand-drawn background with objects that you can interact with and I was like obsessed with it as soon as I saw it and we didn't have a PC at that point I don't think and then a couple of years later we got one and that was aside from the stuff that came with the PC uh, which I think was Rayman and what was that one that wasn't Encarta that was like an encyclopedia can you remember oh yeah I can't remember the only one I can remember is Encarta but yeah I know what you mean So it was like the rubbish one, and that came with the PC. And we got those, and then I think I got FIFA 97, just because it was cheap. And then, yeah, the next game I bought for PC pretty much was Day of the Tentacle, once I could get hold of it. And I played that game so much, over and over again. I must have finished it 30, 40 times. And it's not a short game to finish either, but I was just obsessed. Like, And I knew what was coming, I knew what to do. I could... If speedrunning had been a thing back then, I probably could have speedrun Day of the Tentacle, and then that just got me into those kind of games, and I was just, any that I could find, I got. So, like, Monkey Island, I think it was a two-pack of Monkey Island 1 and 2 on one disc I ended up getting. Uh, I got Sam and Max, because that's a brilliant one. At the tender age of about 12, I think I got the Leisure Suit Larry collection, because my mum and dad didn't know what it was. And we were just, we were in, I, I vividly remember it, we were in Staples, of all places, and they had like a little game section and it was a full Leisure Suit Larry collection for like a tenner. 
And I was like, oh, this is a point and click thing like Monkey Island. Can I get it? And my mum just looked at it and went, yeah, go on then. And then I installed it and I was like, I should not be playing this at this age. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> So uh, yeah, it was it was very much a bedroom door shut when no one else was around. <laughs> game that one, but yeah, I was just I loved all. I mean, I played some horrific point and click games as well, just because they were point and click games. I was obsessed with that type of game, and I've just just before we started recording, I've been playing the newest Monkey Island Return, and I still enjoy it. But my patience and my attention span isn't like it used to be because when I used to play these games, it was literally me and a PC. And that was it. I had nothing to distract me and I could just focus entirely on it. And playing this early on, as soon as a long piece of dialogue came up, I was automatically on my phone scrolling through something and I probably didn't take as much of it in. So I th- it's one of those games, I think, to play Monkey Island and get the full experience now, I'm going to have to close myself off in a room and just and just go through it and not have anything with me, no TV on, no phone, no anything else, and just sit and play it and get the full experience. Because I do enjoy it when I get into it. It's just getting past that initial, uh, I, can't, I can't wait for these people to stop talking so I can go and do something else and solve another puzzle. Whereas before, I was like, every dialogue option, I'd click it and go through it and listen to it all. And I just don't think I have that anymore. Now my time's running shorter than it used to be as a child. Like I'm more I'm more aware that I don't have as much time on this planet as I used to, so I've got to get through <laughs> things faster. I mean, did you play many point-and-click games as a kid, or was it not really your thing? I've played a few point-and-click adventures, but and I think some of the strength of them is that it's sort of the melding of those two worlds of computer games and video games. So obviously old style computer games were just text adventures. So you get like the things like Zork. And as obviously uh, with the hardware limitations back then, you either chose action, which was sort of your computer game model of no story at all. Just go do the thing that the game wants you to do. Or you had story-rich, detailed, crafted worlds, but it was purely text because they couldn't do both. And I think point-and-click adventures are the point where those two started to merge, really. Um, And I think it's so well-suited to PC, point-and-click adventures. I don't think they translate well to computer, to sort of home consoles, because navigating a point-and-click adventure with with sort of like a mouse interface using a pad is shit. They they just can't get the sensitivity right at all. It's either you move the analog stick and your cursor flies across the screen, or you sit there with your thumb held in place as this mouse pointer slowly trolls its way across the screen. But even things like um, Assassin's Creed now use a mouse interface on consoles in the menu system, which I just find odd. I don't get it. It's a chore, isn't it, to play a point and click not on a laptop, like even on a tablet. And you'd think on a tablet it'd be easier because you can literally point and click with your finger. But it's really hard to like the the whole premise of a point and click is you whiz your mouse about and you see you hover over something and a prompt will pop up, investigate this, take this, and you don't get that on a tablet. So you click in everything, hoping that something is interactable. And when the backgrounds are so good it's hard to sometimes tell what bit of it is interactable. So yeah, PC or laptop is like the optimum way to 
to play them. And like you say, on a, especially on a pad, it is a chore because you're either trying your best to just nudge the analogue to get it to go where you want in tiny little movements, or you need something on the opposite side of the screen so it's hold left and sit there for a minute while it, like you say, slowly clicks across the screen to get something. And it's just not fun. And I've I, there are a few point and clicks on consoles. I can't remember off the top of my head which one it was. It might be one of the Monkey Island ones, where they've sort of addressed it, where you walk up to things as your character and then press the interact button rather than having to click around a screen and then if there is a place where you need to look at multiple bits you can view it and then it brings up a pointer and you can move it and click so it's not as intrusive as the whole game being point and click so there are ways around it but it yeah with a mouse in hand you just even with a trackpad on a laptop it's not as good as having a physical mouse in your hand and that's the way they were played and that's the way they they should still be played in my opinion yeah, they, they sort of addressed the issue in things like uh, Grim Fandango, which I'm assuming mm. will come on to if we get time at the end of this. So that was 3D and you literally walked up to stuff and clicked on it. And then more recently, I say recently, it was probably back in 2014 or something like that. Um, but uh, Zach and Wiki on, mm. I think it was the Wii. Again, that was you walked up to stuff and you could use the Wii mote as sort of like a pointer, which obviously is is... a a near comparison to a mouse because it's got that instant feedback of you point at the thing you click at the thing and you don't have to wait for it to come across the screen um the only the only problem i have with um point and click adventures is that a lot of them and i'm i'm sort of tarring them all with quite a broad brush stroke here is that the inventory puzzles can a lot of the time sort of degenerate into just trial and error. And it is just that you have to have either a very, very clever individual who sort of formulates the solutions to these um, inventory puzzles. And so you either go with logic, you do crafty, clever, slightly quirky outside the box, or you do them where they are so simple, like it's... Uh, there's a hungry dog and you've got a hot dog. Either uh, at certain extremes you go to, they are either so frustrating that you don't want to carry on because you're just trying to follow this logic chain that doesn't make any sense or it only made sense to the person that programmed it. Or it's that banal that you just like, oh yeah, okay, hungry dog, here's, here's your hot dog. But Monkey Island finds that sort of really good balance of, yes, there are some inventory puzzles, but some of the other puzzles, like the sword fighting um, witticisms and things like that, that is a, such a superbly done mini game and logic puzzle that doesn't involve any sort of, oh, right, I've got to troll over here, I've got to pick up this banana, and then I've got to walk over here, I've got to pick up this thing, and then I've got to see which one gets the plot to progress. So, yeah, proper credit to Monkey Island for how it dealt with the point and click logic puzzle thing. Yeah, it's. It's not based in reality, certainly not, but there are there's common sense logic to almost everything you have to do that you might not spot it at first, but when you do spot it, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. It's not just moon logic where you just try anything and then something works and you have no idea why it's worked. It just has. Everything in Monkey Island makes sense. It just might not be the first thing you think of to do. So like um, finding a rubber chicken with a pulley wedged in its 
and you'd no idea what it's yeah. for, but then you find a zip wire and then it makes sense. Use that on the zip wire and you can get across to the other side. But to pick that item up initially, your first thought is, well, what the hell am I going to do with this? What is it for? And I can't remember if you even have to craft it or whether it just comes with the pulley in it automatically. I think it does. I think it comes with the pulley and then you just go there and use it. But yeah, the first time I picked that up, I was like, what am I ever going to use this for? And then like a few screens later, you see the zip wire and it makes sense. Yeah, and isn't there a puzzle in sort of like the second act where it's there's a recipe you have to follow and you have none of the ingredients and you've got to sort of follow sort of like a slightly bizarre logic to find yeah. a substitute for each item um, and it's based on size, shape, taste or just, yeah, loads of little bizarre asides that you'd be like, oh, right, okay, that, that doesn't actually make sense. But then when you think about it, you go, oh, no, actually, yeah, no, I can see why. And yeah, you craft, it's either a potion or something to eat or it's, something like that. It's a potion because they literally reference it in the new one, the bit that I've just done, because you're, you're on a ship heading back to Monkey Island and it's the potion you have to craft to get there. If you've not drunk this potion, you can't get to Monkey Island. And on the, the new one, you craft that potion up and then somebody tips it over. So you have to recraft it. And the, the way Monkey Island, Return to Monkey Island is done is really clever because it's Guybrush telling his son the story. So you're playing out the story he's narrating to his child. And then every so often the child butts in with questions. And one of the things that he butts in with is like, oh, so did you have to rebrew the potion with loads of stuff that almost sounds like the right ingredients? And then Guybrush just goes, no, not this time. And then it carries on. So they, they do, the, the new one really harks back well to the, especially the original too. And that, that's, that in and of itself is a really nice reference to King's Quest. Because obviously King's Quest starts where you are the old king and Mm. you're talking your child through the story of how you became king and your child keeps interjecting and asking pointless bloody questions while you're trying to (laughs) narrate how you won these sorts of sword fights and tournaments and stuff like that. So yeah, that's quite nice. I like that. But yeah, one and two are... And one and two in the new one, from what I've played of the new one, are the best in the series by far. And we'll go through all, all six there are six i didn't even realize there'd been that many but let's sort of keep on a little bit on track and and talk about the the two that are in the list first so monkey island or the secret of monkey island the first one came out in 1990 which i didn't realize it was that early because like i said i didn't start playing this till probably 97 and i thought it was a fairly new game because it looks or it looked brilliant back then like the pixel art on it is you look at it now and you can tell it's of its time, but even in 97, it looked new and it was nearly 10 years old by that point. Uh, and they did some remasters recently and I prefer the originals, how the original look. The remasters look stunning, but I'd much I'd rather play in that old pixely style because the amount of emotion they get into characters in a pixel style like that, especially in Guybrush's face when something goes wrong and his face like gets bigger and comes towards the camera and things like that, it it, it looks really good. Uh, it sounds good. It was fully voice acted, I think, the first one. I always forget with these because some some point and clicks are, some aren't, and. I had a different experience to a lot of people because I could never get the sound working on my PC properly. So certain games I've played with no voice when they had it and certain games just didn't have it at all. So I can't remember with this one. I should have looked into that. 
in the back of my head, I've got it that the first one was text only, and then the remasters have added voice in, and then the second one had voice acting put in. That makes that's probably right. Yeah, I don't know if I played them out of order, even though I got a disc with one and two on. I don't know if stupid little me played two first because it looked nicer, and then went back to one like after I got into it. But yeah, the first one, even if it isn't fully voiced. The music is brilliant. The the sounds that they get out of that that sound chip at the time with the pirate shanties and every location have its own little bit of music and it all works. It, as I say, it was one of my favourite games as a kid or one of many point and clicks that I considered my favourites. And this, the storyline, so for anyone who hasn't played it, hearing the full storyline doesn't even ruin the game for you because it's more about figuring out how you progress the storyline. So... It starts off with a, a guy called Guybrush who's an amateur pirate who wants to become a proper fully-fledged pirate and go on a quest to find the secret of Monkey Island. And he gets entangled with a, a ghost pirate called Lechuk who's, I think he's also after the secret of Monkey Island, but it's not a huge plot point, is it? You, you sort of go and you're just trying to get a ship together and a crew so you can go to Monkey Island. And then it's the point when... Um, Elaine, who's like the she the mayor of the island or the, gov- yeah. the governor, isn't she? She's the governor of the island. She gets kidnapped by LeChuck, and then that's when it sort of develops into this plot of you going after him and finding the secret at the same time. But yeah, how it's done is just so clever. Like to become a pirate, you have to do three tasks, and one is to unearth a buried treasure, one is to become a, a pro swordsman, and one is to become a master thief. So the master thief one, you just go and steal something from the, from Elaine's mansion, and she takes a, a liking to you, so you get away with it. The treasure one, you have to craft a map and go and find it and dig it up, and it turns out it's a t-shirt, uh, which was great. And then the sword fighting one is the most time-consuming and in-depth one, as Eddie mentioned. And the, the guy who made the games, so Ron Gilbert, said he knew that he had to have sword fighting in the game, but he didn't want to turn it into an action game. So what he did was he made it like insult sword fighting. So they say something and you have to give a witty retort that matches, but to collect all the retorts, you have to hear them from other people. And you have to also, I think, hear some of the initial jokes as well to to fight back. So it's sort of an exercise in going around and collecting all the retorts that you need to successfully beat the like master swordsman at the end. And yeah, it's, it's just fun. But some of, some of the responses, Sponsors as a kid, I just didn't get. So, like, they were a bit of a struggle, and I, I pieced it all together eventually. But some of them aren't particularly good jokes. So it was like, well, is this the right answer for this one? Oh, maybe. And then you just—it was a lot of trial and error, but it was clever how they did it. Um, and then in the second one, it, it makes a return, doesn't it? But you do it on on the on a ship instead. So they're like nautical jokes instead. So yeah, really, really clever how they got sword fighting into it without having to add action commands and the potential to die. Because that's one of the things that Gilbert said he he really wanted to work on. Because nearly all point and clicks before this, you do something wrong and you just die. It it kills you off. So he wanted to make it where you couldn't really go wrong and you could get wrong answers, but it didn't completely end your game. Because I remember on like Leisure Suit Larry or Space Quest, for example you can do loads of those games and then you do one wrong thing and like just go into a beach or something and you get swept away in the sea and then you die. And then unless you've saved it, you have to go right back to your last save. Yeah, the Sierra ones in particular were unforgiving, as in you walked over a blade of grass the wrong way and it was just like, nope, dead. Walked into a cave. Oh, didn't you see the dragon that was in there that was completely obscured from your view? You're dead again. But yeah, there's there's only... There's only one death state in Monkey Island, isn't there? So there's think, a, is it if a, you stay underwater too long? 
when you get yeah there's in. a throwaway line at the beginning of the game where um guybrush brags that he can hold his breath for longer than 10 minutes and then there is a sequence about halfway through the game where you need to be underwater to pick up these items. And you can, if you want to, just choose to put down your mouse and just leave him there. And as soon as you hit that 10-minute mark, he does drown and die. And I think there's another bit where you're walking near a cliff and he falls off. Mm. And then there's a um, revert to previous save message comes up on screen. You click it and he bounces back up onto the cliff and it said, oh, it was a rubber tree. So they deliberately went out of their way to not allow you to die. I feel like that's in the second one, the rubber tree bit. Right. Because you're on like tropical islands, aren't you? So it would make sense that it's in that one. But yeah, there's the bit with the drowning, you get chained to the idol that you steal from Elaine's mansion, the police chief who... Spoiler, turns out to be LeChuck in disguise. Boots it into the sea off the harbour and it drags you in because you're tied to it. And the solution is to literally pick it up and put it in your inventory and then you can walk around again with no problem and you just grab a sword and climb out of a ladder. But yeah, if you stay there for 10 minutes, then then you do die. And there is, again, there's a callback to that in the new one. You can go underwater and like a little eight minute timer comes up to tell you how long you can stay on that screen board before you'll die. So yeah, there is that one death state, but in Sierra games, like you said, it was it was brutal. I think in is it in Space Quest on one of the first screens you like look at a tree and it eats you or something and then you have to start your game again. <laughs> and it's yeah. like you just can't even there's nothing particularly even special or is it mushrooms or something if you get too close to them they just eat you or and it's there's bits in Space Quest because it was a very early one. I can't remember if it's Space Quest 1 where you have to like there's this thing going around trying to kill you and the only way you can kill it is to push a rock off a ledge on top of it as it skitters by. And if you miss that's it. That's it. You just can't you can't do it again. You've wasted the chance and it will kill you because you need to get past where it is. So there's a lot in the old Sierra games, especially of you wanna be saving like every five seconds and don't save over your old save files because you might have done something to doom your game without even knowing you've done it yet. And then you carry on playing die and then you reload your save and you can't get past whatever it is. Like pushing that rock off. You push that rock off and then save it. That's it. That save file's done. You may, you need to start again. So yeah, uh, Monkey Island was much more forgiving than that, and it was just a good time. And I, it can't be that difficult because I finished it as a kid without the internet and without any help or anything. So it, the first one can't be that difficult. I know there were bits that I got stuck on. I think when you get to Monkey Island itself, there might be, I'm, I I often confuse one and two. But on one of them, you have to like navigate through the jungle and it's left turns, right turns, straight ons. And if you don't go the right way, a bit like the, the Lost Woods in Zelda, it just boots you back to the start again. And I remember that bit taking me absolutely ages because I was too stubborn to try and figure it out. I just kept going until I like looked out and got to the right place. Yeah, well, I think that was the first one because I think they make a past reference to it in the second one. Because isn't there a phone booth? Yeah, where you can one, ring that like you a can number. ring up a helpline yeah, to yeah. get some help from like an official magazine or an official games channel or something like that. Yeah, it's it's sort of uh, taking the mick out of our like every games magazine had those helplines, wasn't it? Because it, yeah. I'm sure it says this is going to cost you like twenty thousand gold coins per minute or something when you first ring up. And then I think there's a parrot or something that actually tells you the way to go. But it's it's something along those lines. It's been so long since I've actually played the the second one. Um, because I tried to get it running on my PC with the original CD 
and it just doesn't like it. I'm gonna if I want to play those again, I'm gonna have to get a Steam copy, I think, or something like that. But no, really, really love the first one. And then yeah, the, there's just weird things in it as well. Like you get a severed head, don't you, to show you the way to Lechuk's ship and yeah. And, and weird stuff like that. And it, the image of that head is really detailed because Monkey Island did this thing where it's mostly pixel art, like cartoony pixel art, but in certain situations, it goes to like a really realistic drawing, yeah. doesn't it, of something? So in the Scum Bar, there's that guy with the Ask Me About Scum VM or whatever, because that's what the game's built in. And it does this big close-up of his face and it's grotesque with all like the beard and the teeth and stuff. And then the same with the shrunken head, when you speak to that, it takes up the whole screen. It's this horrible shrunken head with this necklace on. And yeah, they, they really put some effort into those visuals to make it feel a bit grim and and grubby to match the sort of pirate theme of it. But I really liked it. Yeah, you you say it's um it's got that grubby overtone to it, but at the same time it's so cheerful. Mm. And it's got the traditional LucasArts humor running all the way through it. And if you play any games by the likes of Tim Schafer or Ron his Gilbert. name Gilbert, <laughs> they all have that similar vein of humour, that dry, almost British wit yeah. behind them, and a sense of irony and a lot of sarcasm, um, even to the point where a lot of the puzzle solutions are just very British, is the, is the best way <laughs> yeah. I can put it. Like the the I don't want to spoil it because there will be people that will play it, but how you defeat the last boss in the first game is just, you, yeah. you wouldn't expect it at all. It is, and, and, and the second one as well, there's that similar thing of... And there's a, there's bits of it that are not Monty Python-esque, but getting there. Like, I think there's a bit in the second one where you get knocked out and you see your parents who you think have abandoned you as a child, and then they turn into a skeletons and, like, sing a song about bones, and then you take note of it, and then you have to use that as a puzzle solution later in the game. And it's just all very surreal, but it's got that Monty Python-esque, like, this makes no sense, but at the same time, it it does. It makes enough sense that we can find it funny. So, yeah, it's got that going for it. And move... um, the, the only criticism I've got of the first one, in comparison to the later ones, is there's a lot of backtracking in the first one. Like, a lot of, you go all the way to somewhere to find out you need to go all the way back to where you started to do one tiny thing to go all the way back again. So, yeah, there's, there is that that to it, which is, it prolongs the game, and it's not too intrusive, but it's one of those things that you notice. I think there's a bit, in particular with the shrunken head towards the end, where you go and look for LeChuck's shit, and you think you're doing the right thing, and you search for it, can't find it, have to go back, get the head, then go back to the ship again. Then you get something off the ship, go back, go back to find the ship, and the ship's gone. So then you have to go back again, and it is very sort of like, you see the same screens an awful lot, but they they tone that down for the second one a lot more. And if you don't know what you're doing, then yeah, you do a lot of wandering around from place to place and asking the same questions, trying to figure it out. But once you know what you're doing, it is very... The second one is much more go here, go here, go here. You never having to go all the way back and forward and back and stuff. And yeah, the, the second one is... It's one of those games where it just literally improves on the first one in, in pretty much every way. And the first one was already brilliant. So the second one is just lots more of the same. But they've tightened it up, which I think we've said before on certain games. Uh, it just feels a lot tighter. Yeah, and I suppose that's understandable, really, because obviously if you come from a 
uh, game designers like Sierra, they, they were really clunky, those old point-and-click adventures and what LucasArts did, because obviously they were still Lucasfilm, yeah. but they were determined to have to be ahead of the curve and they knew that CGI off the back of Star Wars was going to be the thing that drove cinema forward. So they built their own games division to sort of drive that technology onwards and the first monkey island was obviously like the poster boy for it sort of like it look what we can do um but it was like kids playing with it at the time because it was so new to everybody and then to obviously realize the potential of the technology and to be able to go right do you know what we'll do a second one and we'll do it better and we'll do everything that we wanted to do with the first one that we didn't have the capability to do in the first time round. and amazingly they did it in a year monkey island 2 was 1991 so they had probably just over a year i think i don't know the months exactly um i only wrote the years down but yeah like around about 12 months 13 months maybe to to get this like from the first one releasing to actually releasing the second one. And yeah, like I say, it's just, it's everything but bigger. So Guybrush is sort of living off the fame of his first endeavours and taking out this ghost pirate and doing all the, the things that he did in the first game. And then he gets robbed by Largo, this dwarf pirate that's on, on this first island. And the whole thing starts off with Guybrush and, and this Largo at, at Loggerheads. Um, and Guybrush ends up making a voodoo doll of him to get rid of him, but in, inadvertently gives him part of LeChuck's beard that's still alive, and he goes off and, and regenerates LeChuck as a zombie. So the first game's a ghost, the second one he's a zombie pirate, and that kicks it all off again, and then it all just all just goes on but yeah Guybrush is again looking for a treasure or a, a secret in the first one, a treasure in this one and it's the treasure of Big Whoop which is one of those <laughs> things that that sounds way better in an American accent, I think, than it does in a British one. It sounds stupid when we say it, but in the game it sort of works. So yeah, you start on Scum Island, which I think is another tip of the hat to the gaming engine that it's built on. And then I realised today, and I've never realised this when I was playing it, the other two items are called Fat and Booty. And I never... (laughs) All the time I played it, I never put those two together. I was just like, oh, Booty, that's treasure. That makes sense. And I never... (laughs) contemplated the name of the other one so there's another little bit in there but yeah the second one it just it looks a lot more cheerful because you're on like more tropical islands aren't you than you are in the first one the the place where you start monkey island in the first game and then the newest game is a bit of a grim little island and then monkey island itself is a little bit more tropical but yeah in the second one you're going to islands that are not rainforest but like tropical palm trees and and lovely little port towns that are all really nicely done out and stuff and it just it's a much cheerier experience even though the the context of it is still quite grim and you've got this zombie pirate chasing after you and and all that going on it just yeah it feels a bit more cheerful and i think the characters are a bit more fleshed out as well in in the second one um you get to find out a little bit more about their motives and like elaine the governor has gone off to this other island to live because she was sick of being where she was and and you and uh, her and guybrush have sort of had this relationship that's then split up and you go through all that with her and she thinks that you're there to see her but you're not you're just there to steal another map piece from her house and it all kicks off and yeah it's it's much more the story seems much more in depth in the second one and there's a lot more to play with the first one was very linear storyline wise this one's got a lot more going on for it 
Yeah, you can sort of see the influence from um, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride from yeah. uh, Disneyland in America and how that's transferred through Monkey Island into the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise because it's sort of you, you can see sort of story beats coming mm. through. You can almost replace Guybrush with Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow of, oh, the, here he is, the handsome man's come to see me in my new mansion. No, no, I've just come to nick your map. It's yeah. that kind of comedy. So, yeah, it's it's nice to see how that's played through, to be honest. Yeah, I think in one interview I read, Ron Gilbert said that the ride was a massive influence for him, that and a lot of old swashbuckling, the Errol Flynn films and that kind of yeah. thing. Took a lot of influence from them. But, yeah, he said he was obsessed with that ride as a kid, and that's where a lot of this comes from because he wanted to make a game but he didn't he weren't that interested in sci-fi so he went the pirate route and and this is what we got and i think it just works out really well so this the second one the ending i think we need to talk about the ending so it's sort of a spoiler but not really so if you don't want to if you don't want to know about the ending of the second one just keep yeah fingers and ears or keep skipping ahead or something until it doesn't sound like we're talking about anymore but the ending is so you go after this this treasure, this big whoop treasure, and you almost find it, but you end up falling down this big crater that you've created because you explode this big hole to try and find the treasure. And then it just goes really weird. So you sort of slam through the floor into these like maintenance tunnels, and it's completely out of place with all the rest of the game. These tunnels just don't look like they belong in the same environment as the first game. And, and LeChuck finds you in there, and he's made a voodoo doll of you, just like you made of of the guy at the beginning and he can use it to keep shocking you and and you have to go through these tunnels and find the stuff to make a voodoo doll of him to take him down so you do that and you tear its leg off because he's a zombie falls to bits and then it does the whole sort of star warsy bit of he's not actually lechuk he's your brother rather than your father and you take the mask off and you can see that it's a kid underneath this mask and then this maintenance guy comes in and tells you that kids aren't allowed to be playing in this area and then you walk out of this bit of a fun fair as two kids like brothers and you walk off with your parents who were in the game earlier on and you think abandoned you at this fun fair and when you're in the maintenance tunnels you find their skeletons sat on this like parents lost parents area and it makes out that like you abandoned them rather than the other way around and yeah you come out as kids and it seems like the whole of monkey island one and two has been a dream it's like a big dream sequence and it was just two kids playing pirates and that's why it was so like what you'd expect a kid to think of (laughs) being a pirate was but then as you're walking off your brother looks to the camera and it sort of turns to lechuk's face and then the credits roll and then you see elaine stood next to the big hole you fell down and she says something along the lines of i hope lechuk's not cast a spell on him or something like that and then it finishes so it sort of left it up in the air as to what was actually going on and then they stopped making them so we never got a third one to explain this until curse of monkey island came out but by that point ron gilbert wasn't involved so it was a completely different team that made the third game and they just followed the story on the best they could but it wasn't his vision for the trilogy. So they they sold it as LeChuck had built like a, a damned theme park and you were under a spell to think that you were a kid when actually you were just wandering around this theme park and you've somehow broken out of it. And then I think at part of that game, he turns you back into a kid in his theme park again and you have to snap yourself back out the trance again. 
So that's how they explained it. But I don't think from what I've read, Ron Gilbert was particularly happy at that explanation. I don't think that's how he wanted to explain it. And he said that if he ever got the chance, he'd make a 3A. That was the real explanation. And now we've got Return to Monkey Island. So I don't know, because I've not finished playing through it yet, and I didn't want to look at any spoilers, whether we do get an answer in this latest game. And and just an answer as to what the secret of Monkey Island actually is, because it's never explained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't. You sort of go into the cave to find it, and then you just don't. <laughs> yeah. And then it never happens. And you never find out what the treasure of Big Whoop is either, because it's you see the treasure chest and it disappears. And I don't think you ever find out what was in there either. So there's a few unanswered questions uh, in the Monkey Island series, at least the original two. And yeah, he did say in the interview that I read that when he was making Return to Monkey Island, he was cherry picking bits of three, four, and five to suit his story and then disregarding the rest. Right. So there's bits in three, four, and five that aren't canon. And then there are bits that he mentions in in return that are. So you've just sort of got to pick apart what bits he wants to carry on using. <laughs> so I think there's a character that gets introduced in three called Murray, which is like a talking skull. Uh, and he claims to be like this death bringer of a pirate and but he's just a skull i think at one point guybrush like flicks him into the water and just leaves him when they're on the ship and then he, he keeps turning up throughout that game and yeah he's he's in six so he's obviously liked that character and and brought him back and guybrush makes reference to knowing him so it's not like he's just reused the character they've obviously got some sort of history as well so yeah it's a it's an interesting series, the way it's diverged and other teams have made their versions of it, but then now we've got the original guy back to finish the trilogy that he wanted to make in the first place. Yeah, um, the the only other bit of remotely interesting facts that I found out about it was how they came up with his name, so Guybrush's name. Oh, come on. Um, so the Threepwood, it was apparently Ron Gilbert was a massive fan of P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, novels and stuff like that so like late 1920s early 1930s um <laughs> pre-war novellas of Jeeves and Worcester and and apparently Threepwood was one of the surnames from that and then when they were originally designing the character they just called him Guy and when they were drawing and, and trying to animate his uh, features they saved him down and they saved him down as Guy the file but it saved down as Guy.brush because dot brush ah. was the file type, so that was how they went. Oh well, we'll call him Guybrush. It so there you go. That's, that's how they came like, up with the name. Yeah, it is. I th- I think you're right. There can't have been audio in the first one because I didn't know how to pronounce it mm. at first when I very first started playing it, and I'm sure I wasn't saying it right. So yeah, they they can't have been in the first one, or my PC wouldn't play it. One of the two. But yeah, that's that's the two Monkey Island games that are in the list. And then obviously there's Curse of Monkey Island, which so all the Monkey Island games have got a different art style. Even one and two, the original one and two have got differing art styles. And I think the difference in one and two was purely technology advancing. Yeah, so the second one, they'd got to a point where um, computers could scan in hand-drawn art. So as opposed to pixel art in the first one, they could literally draw what they wanted, scan it in, and the computer would replicate it in as best it could with the graphics at the time. So yeah, it was technically hand-drawn for the second one as opposed to pixel art for the first mm. one. So I think then the third one came along, and again, probably probably the technology influenced the change in art style, but also they completely re- redraw the characters 
like they're totally different. So Guybrush looks completely different to how he does in one and two. From one to two, he looks fairly similar, just better, better rendered, better drawn. LeChuck obviously changes because he goes from a ghost to a zombie, so it makes sense for his character model to change. In the third one, then you've got, again, completely different art style change. Certain characters look nothing like they used to look. So, like, I think it's Elaine looks completely different to how she looked in in one and two like she's got the headband and the clothes and that's about it everything else just for me it doesn't match up and then four was the 3d one which didn't go down well i remember being really excited for it because i'd played one and two and enjoyed them i'd played three and thought "Eh, it's all right it looks a bit different but it essentially plays the same as the first two and at the time i didn't know that one guy had written the first two and somebody else had written the third i was just at that point where it was oh it's another monkey island game the story carries on, makes sense. Then 4 came out, and I remember seeing like pictures of it in gaming magazines, and I was like, ooh, what have they done? Even for the time, the 3D didn't look good. It wasn't like it was, oh, we're in a time where Tomb Raider 1-style 3D graphics and, and things are just advancing. This was well into a time where 3D graphics could look really nice, and these didn't particularly. Yeah, when you think how well Grim Fandango looked... Hmm for the character models and stuff. I realised they just looked like they were wearing paper bags on the reds that looked like skeleton <laughs> masks. But it was done well. It was stylized to a degree. So, yeah, compare that to what they did with that one. Not great, really. It's not even just the looks, either. It's the motion and the movement. It's so stilted. It's like they're missing frames out of the animation when they walk or when anything particularly happens in it. And there's, like, big jumps between stuff happening. So there's one scene in it where they're trying to destroy the governor's mansion and there's a guy with a catapult just launching rocks at the governor's mansion and missing, trying to blow it up with a catapult for some reason. And you have to stop him. And the way you stop him is to build a huge slingshot. So he fires a rock at the mansion. It gets caught up in your slingshot, fires back and blows his catapult up. But when that scene plays out, you see the rock fire and then there's like a huge cut. And then it shows a close-up of the slingshot taking the rock and bouncing it back. Then there's like another huge cut and then it goes back to the thing getting hit. And then it doesn't immediately blow up when the stone hits it. There's like another few seconds then it goes, boom, puffs into smoke. And it just wasn't well animated, I suppose. Is and And I don't think it's the the hardware it's running on because my i think i had it for pc and then playstation and it was the same on both so it wasn't like it was my pc that was struggling it was just the way it was put together was just really shoddy uh and it it didn't do well as a result and it wasn't a terrible game in terms of storyline and gameplay and like you say with monkey island the puzzles all made sense and it was fun to play if you could look past how bad it looked how weird it was to control it especially on a playstation and just, yeah, it just didn't... It's not a game that needed to be 3D. No. It works perfectly well as a 2D game. If they'd have made it 3D, but like the first and the second one, but with 3D characters, and you click somewhere and the little 3D character walks over to it, and it, there were smaller sprites on like a town map and stuff, that could have worked. But this is... The character models are pretty much all you can see in a lot of the scenes until you walk into the distance a bit, and... Yeah, it's quite intrusive in how they'd done the 3D and it just didn't need to be done. Obviously, they realised that because the next game they made was Tales from Monkey Island, which is back to the 2D, almost hand-drawn animation style. 
Yeah, and that was by Telltale Games, who thankfully have been brought out of administration now, because I think EA bought them, which is just depressing. Um, Because as soon as EA buys anything, they do what EA always does, which is make them make something that the company (laughs) can't physically handle, close them down, and then buy themselves another ball pit to have a tantrum in. Um, (laughs) Sorry, EA, not a massive fan with your uh, business practices, to be fair. Um, But yeah, so it it was a nice, it was a sort of return to form, but obviously it focused more on the story side of it and the branching narrative and your choices make uh you know make a different sort of style to monkey island whereas the other monkey islands were there was only way to solve the logic one way to yeah. solve the logic puzzle it didn't get a lot of fanfare either did it i don't think tales i don't remember it barely being mentioned when it came out i'd, I'd sort of i was sort of aware of it and then when i went through earlier on and looked at all the games i was like oh yeah that was a thing and and I'd completely forgotten it. I don't think I've ever played it, unless they did like a mobile demo or something. I'm pretty sure I won't have played those ones. But yeah, moving on to 6, which is the true return to form, which came out end of last year, September-ish, I think, last year. This is a proper Monkey Island game. This is This is the proper third game, I suppose you'd look at it. It's exactly the same style. It's it's at least at the start is all set in the same place it's all the same shops and things that used to go in although a lot of them have closed down and new ones have opened and it really plays on that nostalgia of the first one i mean there's even there's a location in it called the museum and when you go there it's where i think it's where grip up used to live uh they've turned it into a museum and it's got loads of items from the first two games in it and when you click on them the museum curator tells you about them but every bit of information he gives is wrong and it's not about guybrush and then he like corrects him and the guy's like no i don't think you're right and and they just play on the fact that this guy's just got all the wrong information about all these different items that relate to old monkey island and going into that and clicking through them all was like for me such a nostalgia trip because there's the coffin that he uses to sail away through the swamps in the, in the second one. And then there's like the mug that he puts the grog in to break, I forgot his name, out of jail in the first one so he can join your crew and and things like that. And they're all on the wall. And it just, yeah, I was clicking through them. I was like, I remember what this bit was from. So that's a nice little touch. And there's loads in it that, that harks back to the old games. Like you go in the... Um, the scum bar and the the chef's still in there and he still kicks off if you try and steal stuff from him and it's very very faithful the guy with the scum asked me about scum badge is still in there and you can talk to him about it and stuff so yeah they've they've really gone all out to be like we want to make this for fans of the original two games and they've done a brilliant job i'm i'm absolutely loving it it's took me a while because i got it when it released played it for about an hour and then I've just not picked it back up until sort of this week. Slightly annoyed because it went on Game Pass a week after I paid 30 quid for it, or 20 quid or whatever it was. But I don't mind paying for it because it's a franchise that I absolutely love, and if it encourages them to make more, then I'm all for it. Um, I suppose it's it's a nice parallel as well to... So Monkey Island is now at around about the same stage as its original audience, where... (laughs) They're having to go into museums to see games consoles that they used to play on as a kid, and now they're considered antiques and stuff like that. And it's, yeah, it's quite a nice parallel of Monkey Island aging as a franchise Mm. alongside its consumer base. So, yeah, it's quite a nice touch, really. So, we've gone 
way longer than I thought we would have just talking about Monkey Island. So let's get these scored and then we will look at a couple of other really, really good and potentially really bad point and click games. So I will just bring up the list, which I still haven't updated. So we're going to have to remember what we did last week. <laughs> I'm guessing I'm going to have a little bit more nostalgia for these than you. Yes, I would say so. I mean, looking at the list, for me, they would be really, really high. I'm talking like low 90s high because I absolutely adored these games and I could still, like we said last week about Resident Evil, I could still go back and play these games now and the graphics wouldn't bother me and nothing about how old they are would actually deter me from going back and playing through them all. I know I said earlier on that I don't have that level of concentration, but I'm pretty sure if I just shut myself in a room with just my laptop, I could immediately go back to being like 11 or 12 and just play through these and get exactly the same experience out of it again. So for me, I would potentially want to put them between Sonic 3 and Knuckles and Super Mario 64. So I think we bumped Sonic 3 and Knuckles up to a 91, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Last week. So that would leave the 92 slot open. Uh, and I'd be tempted to put them in there. I know that the, you don't have the same experience, but if we combine the two together and stick yeah. them in the, the sort of 92 slot, I think that is where I'd like to put them. I, I'd i agree with you because they were, they were like the peak of the point-and-click adventure genre. And it's it sort of plateaued a bit since then, and then since then it's just taken a massive dip. Um, a lot of the ones that have come out recently, aside from the new Monkey Island, haven't been great. Um, I think they genuinely do struggle to do good point-and-click adventures. There are a few exceptions to the rules, as there are with everything, um, like Thimbleweed Park and stuff like that. Some of that's been say, yeah. really good. And is it Oxenfree as well? That that was a massive... Yeah, I remember seeing it. I've not played it. Thimble Is it Thimblewood or Thimbleweed Park? Is Again, though, that's Ron Gilbert, so... It's the same guy doing the same thing that he's done well for years, so it just makes sense that that was always going to work. Yeah, um, and then there was The Cave a couple of years back as well. That was by Double Fine, which is Tim Schafer, who also worked at LucasArts with Ron Gilbert. So again, they've Ron obviously Gilbert's, got quite a history. I think he's involved with The Cave as well. I don't know if he was right. a writer on it, so... It seems to be anything yeah. he touches, yeah, is is worth playing. Like you say, they've took a well, they took a dip in like <laughs> the early two thousands, and they just never recovered. And you get the odd good one these days, but there have been so many that aren't worth playing because either the writing's not good, or they use moon logic because they just can't be bothered to come up with good puzzles. And yeah, it's that kind of and and looking back at Resident Evil last week. There's elements of point-and-click games in Resident Evil games when you think about yeah. the, the puzzles and figuring out what needs to go in where to trigger a door or how you get a certain key by moving things around. And you can see that. So I don't know if it was a direct influence, but it's certainly a similar gameplay mechanic that is introduced in point-and-clicks that you then see in like Resident Evil games where you've got the puzzle element of it. Yeah. It, to be fair, if you took the zombies and the enemies out of Resident Evil, you could quite easily convert that into a point-and-click adventure of you just exploring a mansion and trying to work out what's gone on. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you can see the influences laid bare. And to, to go back to some really bad point-and-clicks from, from sort of the last couple of years, Broken Age in particular, 
that was unfortunately that was a Tim Schafer, mm. but it was crowdfunded and that used Moon Logic. That just some of the stuff in there, you just go, no, that doesn't make sense, and you do spend a lot of time with. 40 inventory items going does this work no does this work no does this work no and you just end up churning and it just brings the the problem with that is that because it's heavily narrative driven you just then stop the narrative dead because you don't get any more narrative unless you can work out the puzzle so you end up spending half an hour just picking items up and seeing what fits this particular puzzle hole and it's just frustration and it doesn't gel well with the uh, story making it just doesn't that's one of the things that the new monkey island does really well if you pick an item out of your inventory and try and use it on something it won't let you unless either it can be used with it or they've put like a witty line in as to why you shouldn't use it so most things don't so if you go into your inventory to combine two things for example you can hover that item over everything in your inventory and unless it comes up with a use these together prompt you know that it can't be and same for things in the real world if you if there's no reason for you to give a key to a person it just red crosses it you can't click right. it and then guybrush go no that doesn't work so then you don't have to dip back into your inventory. You can move that key around other things and see if they interact with something else on the screen. So they've cut a little bit of that out of, of like the trial and error as well on the new one, which is a good way to go. It's similar to like in think Fallout 3 to Fallout 4, where in Fallout 3 you can't see what's in boxes or whether they're empty. Whereas in Fallout 4, if you hover over like a box or a filing cabinet, if it's empty, it tells you, so you don't have to waste time yeah. opening it and looking in it. So it's just those little quality of life things, I suppose, that that make the newer versions a little bit better. But looking at other point-and-click games, so I've already mentioned my favourite was Day of the Tentacle, which was a sort of sequel to Maniac Mansion, which I'm amazed they haven't remade yet, because Maniac Mansion is one of those where you can die, and you can die quite easily. It's really easy to just get caught and and game over on it all the time. And I'm amazed they haven't remade it with newer graphics and taken out those death scenes or at least modified them so you can... Because you get put in in a jail, I think, in in Maniac Mansion or the basement. And if all three of your characters get locked in there, it's game over. So whether they could work a way where you can break out and essentially start again. But yeah, I'm I'm surprised that's never been redone because it is a fun game. It is just, it looks really old and it's really difficult at the same time. And it's, it's got timed events. So if you're in a certain place at a certain time, you get caught. Or if you're not in a certain place at a certain time, you can't progress that way. But it's also got multiple routes to victory which is really clever. So you can take out the science experiment that Ed's doing. You can get rid of the piece of meteor that's causing all the trouble. You can literally nuke the mansion if you want. There's all these different ways to finish it, depending on which route you take, which is so clever. But yeah, that's never really been touched. And and I think it's probably overdue a, a remake or a little tidy up at the very least. Grim Fandango, which you mentioned, another another brilliant one. One that I didn't get on board with at first because of the change to 3D graphics. I don't think my PC had run it, so I didn't play it for ages, and I was always a bit standoffish with it. And then when I started playing it, I got really into it uh, and finished it in like a few days because it, it was just so well written. Yeah, it's, it's the characters and the storyline that does it for me with uh, Grim Fandango because it, it's basically... Uh, the Aztec afterlife and the main character Manny Calavera 
is a he's sort of like a holiday rep, isn't he? To to arrange yeah. your onward travel into the afterlife, and he arranges your holiday package for you. It's just bizarre, and it's sort of a film noir twist in it. So there's murder, there's like shadowy intrigue, and Manny gets sort of roped into helping the damsel in distress who's been defrauded of her money, so she can't get the sort of like premium package, which gives you an express trip to the afterlife whereas if you don't you have to literally walk or you have to get the bus essentially it's just it, yeah lovely logic does he get framed for something and you go on the run he gets framed for murder hmm. yeah it's been absolutely ages since i've played it i just remember there's is there like a bear that's also a truck or something yes glottis yeah he's that's he's like it, a yeah. giant ginger bear cat thing that turns into a truck again yeah. <laughs> bizarro logic <laughs> i remember that bit but yeah that is a really good one and it, it's not difficult to find now i think it's on game pass or it was at one point because they did a remaster didn't they and then it got i'm sure it got chucked on game pass for pc and for xbox i think so if you've got a game pass you can play that now and it's it's well worth a play full throttle and the dig are two that i've never played but i know that they're really well liked i think one of the things the only thing i've really seen about full throttle is I think there's a bit in it where you have to press like a specific brick in a wall and it's not obvious which one it is at all. So you have to like click every single brick until it triggers this like secret door or something. Yeah, I think it's there's a crack in the wall and you have to stare mm. at it for five minutes for it to do anything. So you have to <laughs> A, click on the right bit. And then once you've clicked on it, you just don't do anything, which in... Point-and-click adventure logic just doesn't make any sense because you are taught with point-and-click adventure, just click everything, just keep clicking everything until it does something. And I think um, Broken Age did that as well, where you literally, you're in a room and you, the puzzle solution to it is to do nothing. And it's it's a long wait. Mm. So you just sat there drumming your fingers thinking, what? What am I doing? And then obviously you get bored, think that's obviously not working, start clicking on everything, and you will never solve the puzzle in that room if you are active. And yeah, it's just, it grates against the traditional gameplay, really. It's odd. And then we got Indiana Jones. So there's a couple of Indiana Jones ones. So there was a, a retelling of The Last Crusade, which is really good, part, save from a couple of odd little bits in it. It is really faithful. And then there was The Fate of Atlantis, which I remember playing. And being, not having moon logic, but being very, it took me a long time to finish that game. I don't know if I ever finished it. I might have got right to the end. I seem to recall a bit where you're climbing, crawling through these like tunnels in this huge machine uh, towards the end. And I don't think I ever finished it, but it it was a good one. And it's because it's like a recognizable character. It sort of writes itself. They would have really struggled. Like, I mean, I know they struggle to write a good Indiana Jones film now because the last two have been garbage, but The Fate of Atlantis, it's Atlantis, it's Indiana Jones in Atlantis writes itself pretty much, so they didn't have to put in a lot of effort, but they did. All the writing for it is, well, better than the last two films, definitely. But there's loads of dialogue and stuff in it that is really Indiana Jones in, and like it fits so well. You can tell they didn't just phone it in and go, oh, we've got an IP, so... We don't really need to do the writing very well because people know it's Indiana Jones. They really went that extra mile and made it like a fully fledged. I mean, some people consider it the fourth film rather than the two films they did because it is so much better than them. 
it's almost like you're playing through an Indiana Jones film. Yeah, apparently the first one, so the um, retelling of The Last Crusade, apparently they found that more difficult to make because obviously Mm. they were building it to release around the same time as the film and there were obviously embargoes on the script. So apparently they genuinely struggled to build the game because they weren't given full access to the script. So they were given bits in sort of like piecemeal sections. So I think it released about three months after the film released because of that. And then when they were given complete creative license for um, The Fate of Atlantis, uh, they obviously just went, yes, finally, um, just did a really good job with it. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, before we end off, there are a couple more to talk about. So they they were all the the big LucasArts ones. Obviously, we've mentioned Sierra. So, I mean, I could do an episode on Leisure Suit Larry on its own. So we might end up doing that at some point. I don't know. We might not be able to release it anywhere other than Patreon, but I could do a full episode on that. Um, and then King's Quest Space Quest have obviously come a long way. So the newer ones don't have the death in them that the old ones did and they're not as difficult and they're not as tricky to figure out. But there are some really good playthroughs, especially Space Quest. On If you look on the Game Grumps channel, I think Dan does some on his own because they were like his massive childhood games. So he just plays through them and they're like three or four hour videos of just him going from start to finish talking about playing them as a kid. And I got so much nostalgia, even though I didn't play those games very often as a kid, I got so much nostalgia watching him enjoy them and talk about how difficult they used to be and all that kind of thing. So yeah, if you wanted to know a bit more about King's Quest and Space Quest, go and check them out. And then Virgin Interactive were the other ones that really did loads of point and clicks, and they did loads of point and clicks, and not many of them are really worth playing. But the one that always stood out for me was a game called Toonstruck, and nobody I've ever spoke to knows this game. But I remember it being on the shelf in-game, and the cover is the thing of nightmares. I think I sent you a link, didn't I, last week? and. Did, yeah. The cover is terrifying, and it's not really indicative of the game, not very much of it anyway, Um, but in the game, you play as Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future, so he is a character, but you play as a live-action version of him in a cartoon world, and he's he's the guy who's drawn all these cartoons and comics, and he gets drawn into the world to help save it, and then most of it is going round as him, speaking to all his creations and there's some big bad that's like erasing people it's very like reverse roger rabbit i think you described it as when i told you it last yeah. week and that does explain it perfectly there's something going around killing off all the tunes but you're in their world trying to save them and that that has a bit of logic that is bizarre but because you're in a comic it sort of makes sense so they've worked that well uh, so i'd really recommend if you can manage to find a copy of that that one is really fun to play, but it sort of gets forgotten these days. But yeah, that's for me, that's the sort of point and click. I think we'll have to do an episode on point and clicks just just to go through some of the other ones because uh, more of them deserve to be in this list for me, which which they're not. Yeah, um, if, if I was going to recommend sort of a, a more modern take on the point and click adventure, I would highly recommend people, I mean, I dare say there's plenty of people out there that have actually already played them telltale games any of them to be honest with you tales from the borderlands if you like the borderlands series if you're a fan of the walking dead the first two seasons of the walking dead for telltale games are fantastic 
Um, and it's what got Telltale their acclaim, really. Um, fairly recently, I think it was back in 2015, 2016 or something like that. Th- their releasing of the first season of The Walking Dead was really what kicks uh, kicked them into the limelight, to be honest with you. But they've done other comic ones. They've done a Batman one, which is quite good. Um, and they've done a um, Big Bad Wolf one. So it's based on the Fables series of comics. Um, and that's mm. very good as well. And that's it's based around Bigby Wolf. Um, and again, it's a bit film noir-ish. You're trying to work out who's murdered Snow White, I think. Um, and there's all sort of fairy tale characters, but it's set um, sort of tangentially in the real world. So it's like in downtown Chicago and you've got the likes of the Big Bad Wolf and um, Old Mother Hubbard living alongside <laughs> real people. Um, and they're where the stories and the fables have come from. Um, yeah. So yeah, there's, they are really well-crafted telltale. Um, I haven't played the recent Borderlands, Tales from the Borderlands. but They've done a few, like even as far as like Minecraft, they did a Minecraft one, didn't they, Telltale? Yes. Which is like a choice-driven Minecraft adventure. So no matter what franchise you're into, they've probably dabbled in it, or, or there will be a franchise you like in a Telltale game. I didn't get on with The Walking Dead one that much, because at the time I'd only watched the TV show, and they're comic-based, aren't they? So all the characters are quite different. But it's its own story, isn't it? So you meet characters from the TV show and the comic, but it's its own thing. You're looking after a young girl, aren't you, that's been abandoned, and it, it just goes from there. But yeah, we'll, we'll not cover too much of that because it it will give things away for people that want to play it. But we've got another recording to, uh, to jump on. We're going to record a special episode with a special guest today, so... Uh, I'm I'm reliably informed he's waiting, so we will have to cut this one now. But before we do, we just want to say once again thank you to all our patrons. So we want to say thank you to Lee in the couple of coins tier. We want to say thank you to the Sweaty Llama and Dino Dini in the Bucket Kickers tier and Atropos in the Avatarnish tier, who did get his avatar today actually. So that will be popping up on facebook soon you'll be able to see that one and it is a cracker i can say that much so with that said we still can't really do endings i don't really know the best way to end these so we'll stick with the traditional format of that's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me (laughs) 